And if you, like many of us, are not entirely sure where that is, if you start at Matthew and just go back two books, you'll be at the book of Zechariah, the longest of the minor prophets. I'm not sure how he would feel about being called minor, but that's beside the point. And we'll begin our study of the 14 chapters of Zechariah. Now, some of you may be wondering, why, why Zechariah? But I hope by the end of this morning and the coming weeks, you will see how rich it is. I would remind you that all Scripture is profitable. All Scripture is valuable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. But I, I think the book of Zechariah is particularly poignant and applicable for us today. And I think we'll find much encouragement from it. You'll notice that there are two inserts in the bulletin. Um, the regular insert and the green insert. And that is because we will be looking over a good deal of Israel's history today. And I hope that will also prove to be edifying. Late in my studies, Friday night, Saturday morning, I concluded that we will split this opening message into two weeks. So be prepared for that as well. But Zechariah, Zechariah. And one of the reasons why this is probably an unfamiliar book not only is it one of the 12 minor prophets, which probably comprise the least read portion of the Bible, but it, it is written addressing probably the least well-known portion of Israel's history. Everyone knows the story of David and Goliath. Everyone knows the story of the fall of Jericho, the call of Abraham, the exodus from Egypt, but the post-exile period, not so commonly known. It may surprise you to know that six books of the Bible are written addressing this time period specifically. Six books of the Bible deal with Israel's history after the return from Babylon. So evidently, it is a period of Israel's history that God wants us to be aware of. It's a, it's a period of Israel's history that is important. And so as we go into Zechariah, we're going to sort of introduce the book and then hopefully dive into the first few verses I want you to turn to the, to the uh, historical outline because we've got to sort of set where we are. There's so much of Israel's history is, is meant to set the context in the Old Testament for this book. If you've read through the books of the Old Testament and you've come across the genealogies and you've wondered why, why is all this here, it's because Christianity is not just a philosophy, not just a way of living, not just the better life. It is deeply and profoundly rooted in historical reality. And every time you come across a genealogy and every time you come across a date, what God is saying is this happened and knowing when and where and how it happened is important. So we're just going to review briefly Israel's history up until the point of the return from the exile. And just You can follow along the points. We're not going to look up all these passages But we're going to dive into Israel's history. And, and you, you know the first early chapters of Genesis, which this morning, this evening's um, small group will be going into, deals with the creation. And after the creation comes the fall and the flood and then Babel, the dispersion of the nations. And out of that milieu, God calls one man, Abram, and he makes an everlasting covenant with him. You know this. And he promises him a land and a seed and a blessing. And Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And, and then the rest of Genesis follows Abram's, now Abraham's, descendants. 
And we, and we follow the story of Isaac and Jacob, later renamed Israel. And then we read about his 12 sons, and Joseph goes down to Egypt, and eventually, through Joseph, God saves his family. And the whole family goes down into Egypt, where they stay for 400 years. Initially received as honored guests, there eventually arises a Pharaoh who does not know Joseph. And they become slaves, and they cry out to God. And amongst great hardship and persecution, you'll remember that Pharaoh ordered the, the death of the male children thrown into the Nile, the Lord sends a deliverer. The Lord hears and he remembers and he feels compassion. And, and Moses is sent. And in Exodus 13 to 14, we read of the Exodus, God leading his people out, now a nation, as he's fulfilling his promise to Abram. Remember, I'll make many nations of you. Well, here is the first of these many nations, Israel, God's firstborn son referred to in Hosea. And they go to Mount Sinai and they enter into a covenant with God, a covenant that will govern them legislatively as a, as a political body group, that will govern them religiously and civilly. And then, after 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, they enter into the land under Joshua. And that's where the, the, the walls of Jericho fall and they begin to take conquest of Canaan, the only true holy war in all history, the conquest of Canaan. They take possession of most of the land. And then, because the people haven't been entirely faithful, because there's still land that they left uncaptured, because they don't teach their children about who God is, we have the cycle of the judges, which is a period of, of seven ups and downs where the people forsake God, and God, in judgment, gives them into the hands of their enemies, most commonly the Philistines. And then the people cry out to God in their difficulty, and the Lord raises up a deliverer. And the people return to the Lord, and then the people turn away from the Lord, and it goes over and over and over. And eventually, the people cry out for a king. And Saul is made the first king of Israel. And then, in, in 1051 BC, David becomes the first king of unified Israel. Saul was king over Israel, but it wasn't unified. David makes Jerusalem the capital, and he rules over the ten tribes from Jerusalem. And this is sort of the high point of Israel's history. This is the good golden days, the reign of David. But sadly, it is short-lived. David has a son named Solomon. He begins well, ends poorly. And he has a son, Rehoboam, who splits the kingdom in two. And this great kingdom that God was going to reveal his glory to the world, Israel was going to be a light to the nations. Israel was going to be put on display as God's handiwork, his chosen people, is torn in two. The ten tribes in the north, if you look at that map there, uh, the sort of the blob next to Canaan with Jericho in it, that blob in the north is, is the ten tribes of Israel, and to the south, Judah and Benjamin. And they have separate kings. And <coughs> all of the northern tribes' kings are unfaithful, apostate idolaters. And God warns them, and he warns them, and he warns them. And eventually, in 722 BC, Shalmaneser IV of Assyria comes, captures the ten northern tribes, and they are taken away, never to be heard from again. And, and the reason why I want you to see this is I want you to see the great anticlimax. 
that's, that's taking place in Israel's history. God comes to Abram, I'm going to make a great people of you. And then God, in, in delivering them with Moses, I'm going to bring you to a land dripping with milk and honey. I'm going to make a great nation of you. And they enter in, and things start to go well. And then during the, the heyday of David, things are looking good. And it doesn't last very long. It does not last very long at all before the kingdom is divided and then the ten northern tribes are swallowed up, gone. You'd think that might lead the southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, to consider the error of their ways, to repent, to return to the Lord. And there are brief periods of revival, such as under Josiah, but by and large, no. No, the southern tribes, they conclude they're just more righteous. They just conclude they're better than the north. That's why God's left them alone. And they continue on in their idolatry. And God sends prophets to warn them. He sends to them Jeremiah, warning them that a, a, great, a great power from the north is going to come and is going to discipline them. And they don't listen. And so in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar comes of Babylon. He comes in three waves, but in 586 B.C., he lays siege to and ultimately destroys Jerusalem and the temple. He plunders the temple. He takes the golden... Um, tools and vessels, brings them to Babylon, and he takes the people to Babylon. And they are off the land. He takes the Davidic king captive. And you've you got to understand what a massive blow this is to Israel. There's all these promises at this point attached to Israel's king. God promises David, you will never lack a man for the throne. Never. There is no throne because there's no nation. They're in Babylon. And, and the, the worship of God centering around the temple. Well, they can't worship around the temple. There is no temple, and they're not near it. And in Babylon, the Lord sends them Ezekiel to the, to the country land and Daniel to the capital city. And the message there is, I can still be your God even without a temple. I can still be your God even when you're off the land. But you need to repent. And then Cyrus becomes king. Cyrus captures Babylon in 536 B.C. He is a Persian. He dams up the river, Tigris River, and his men go into Babylon under the portcullis. The, the portcullis over the river doesn't go all the way to the bottom. And in one night, while Belshazzar, Belteshazzar is having his drunken party, and the hand writes on the wall, meany, meany, tequila, farce, and judge, judged, and wanting... They take over Babylon without much actual opposition. And now, after 70 years in captivity, God remembers his covenant with Abraham. He remembers his promises to Israel. And as the prophet Isaiah foretold, he issues the most amazing good news that Israel could hear. You can go back. In fact, I order you to go back. And I order you to go back and rebuild the temple. And what's, what's amazing is over 200 years earlier, the prophet Isaiah prophesied this very thing, naming Cyrus by name. If you, if you remember our series on, on the Bible and inerrancy, um, Jeb Brewer pointed out the, the, this, this immensely accurate prophecy. Listen to Isaiah 44, 24 to 28. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth for myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns back wise men and makes their 
knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messenger, who says to Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And to the cities of Judah, they shall be built. I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, and dry up your rivers, who says to Cyrus, 200 years before Cyrus is born, Isaiah names him, who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Just an absolutely amazing prediction in Isaiah, fulfilled exactly. And so after 70 years of captivity, Israel can go back. If you turn in your Bible, keep your thumb in Zechariah, turn to Ezra. Because Ezra is the historical book that gives us the most complete chronology of these events. And for those of you in Dave Lample's class, I think you might have a leg up on the rest of us. <coughs> but, but turn to Ezra. And we read of this in, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. You've got to understand what big news this is. What a big deal this is. God is keeping his promise. God has not abandoned his people. God will have a man on David's throne. Israel shall be restored. Ezra 1, verse 1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of that the word of the Lord by Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Wherefore, whoever is among you of all the people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem, and let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of this place with silver and gold, with goods and beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Isn't that amazing? They're not a people. They're swallowed up by this world power Babylon, and Babylon gets swallowed up by the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Lord, because he is the king of kings, remember we looked at that a few weeks ago, he is the king over all kings, and he holds them and counts them as dust in the scales, he turns the heart of Cyrus, send my people back, and Cyrus does. And not just send them back, send them back with supplies. Send them back with money. Order them to rebuild my house. That, that is good news. Sadly, Israel at that time had adapted to their environment. They'd built homes, they'd gotten involved in industry, and even though many million Jews went into captivity, 50,000 return under this proclamation. It's it's. Very discouraging. If you turn over to chapter 2, we see that in verses 64 to 65. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337, and they had 200 male and female singers. That's all. That's all. A remnant returns. A remnant. And so... Again, get the trajectory. There's this great promise. We're going to go into the land. It's going to be great. God's going to do great and powerful things. He's going to set you among the nations. But they didn't worship God, and so he 
gave them over to their enemies, hoping they would repent, and they don't. And eventually, they're swallowed up and taken captive. And then, after 70 years are up, Cyrus says, your God has told me, go build his temple. We'll pay for it. We'll give you the supplies. Go. And 50,000 people return. And those 50,000 people begin building the temple, but almost as soon as they begin building the temple, they stop. They run into opposition. The Samaritans from the north come down. If a fox were to climb on that wall, it would fall down. And they get harassed, and they stop. And the building project ceases for about 15, 16 years. So I want you to get this. This is the scene where Zechariah shows up. A small people swallowed up by a large people, and a small subset of that small people returns, and, and then it just stutters and stalls. And here they are. They're back in the land. But Israel is no longer the world power. The queen of Sheba is no longer coming to pay homage. They're, they're a footnote in history. They're on the sidelines of global politics. They don't even have their own king. The king they have, or the ruler they have, Zerubbabel, is installed. He gets his power from a foreign king. And they begin to weakly to build the temple. And at the first sign of opposition, they just call it quits. They give up. But God, because he is faithful, sends two prophets to encourage his people in 520 B.C. First he sends the prophet Haggai and then Zechariah. And after that, there's only going to be one more prophet, Malachi, and then the Old Testament is done. So we are very near the end of the story. So I want you to turn back to Zechariah. Turn back to Zechariah. And, that, and that's the context. You've got to understand that Zechariah is going to a discouraged people. He is going to an enfeebled people, a small people, a broken people, a faint-hearted people. They remember the stories of the glory days, the unified kingdom when, when Israel was a world power to be reckoned with when they had prestige and honor, and all they see around them is ruin, rubble, and their weak attempt to build the temple stalls. And they've got to wonder, you know, what came of all these promises and what happened? And God sends them a prophet. In fact, turn back a page in your Bible to Haggai, because we've got to start there, because the dating here is specific. Both Zechariah and Haggai give very, very tight timestamps to when their prophecies took place. And what you learn is if you compare Zechariah 1.1 with Haggai 1.1, you find out that two months before Zechariah shows up, Haggai shows up. So Zechariah is not speaking into a void. There's a, the context is that two months earlier, Haggai 1.1, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Tizerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak. Now those two people, Zerubbabel and Joshua, will show up and they will play a part in Zechariah. So make note of them. And here's what the word of the Lord says in verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. You see, when people want to cop out, when people want to be unfaithful, they generally don't say, let's be unfaithful. They come up with nice, sanctimonious reasons. You know, 
now is not the appropriate time to rebuild the temple. You know, I just, the Lord hasn't put it on my heart yet. Um, now, not now, later. We've we got to wait for the right time. Never mind that Isaiah prophesied it, that Cyrus decreed it. Now's, now's not the right time. It has nothing to do with the fact that there's difficulty in opposition. That's just not the right time. And so, verse 2, the Lord of hosts says, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruin? You see, Cyrus made sure they had plenty of wood and cedar and goods. Amazingly, the temple's not built, but they've got really nice houses. Hmm. Hmm. Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you have never enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes, which is to say... Hey, guys, take, take notice of yourself. Do you realize, you notice that all of your work and all of your labor, it is not coming to much? Might it have something to do with the fact that you're not being faithful to me, declares the Lord. Thus says the Lord, verse 7, consider your ways. Go up to the hills, bring wood, build the house, that I may take pleasure in it, that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, and behold, it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills and the grain and the new wine and the oil and what the ground brings forth on man and beast and on all their labors. So God sends a rebuke. Two months before Zechariah shows up, he sends a rebuke at the mouth of Haggai, you guys, you got real nice houses. That's not why God sent you back here. He sent you back to build his house. That might explain why there's, there's no produce of the crops. That might explain why your labors and your work and your effort have come to nothing. Guys, get back with the project. Get back building the Lord's house so you might take pleasure in it and you might take pleasure in you. And, and something amazing happens. Revival breaks out. Let's, let's keep reading in Haggai. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God. And the words of Haggai, the prophet, as their Lord, their God, had sent him, and the people feared God. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message, I am with you, declares the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and they worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the month, in the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. And so this is still now just two months before Zechariah shows up. This is the context. This is the context. These people have returned. They started feebly. They stopped. God sends Haggai to, to call them to obedience. And amazingly, they do. I just love that in, in verses 12 and 13. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, and they feared the Lord. 
And all of a sudden, blessings start coming. I'm with you, declares the Lord. And then in, in chapter 2, now just a little bit before Zechariah shows up, Zechariah is going to show up in the eighth month of Darius's second year. Check, chapter 2 of Haggai. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. <coughs> Excuse me. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? You see, there are some people, some Israelites, who'd returned, who they're old enough, they're probably in their 80s or 90s, they remembered Solomon's temple. And they could make the comparison. How many of you remember it? How do you see it now? And of course, the obvious answer is it was pathetic. It's nothing. It's puny. Is it as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehoshadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts. Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasure of all nations shall come in. I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. And the very next timestamp, the very next verse actually now jumps ahead of Zechariah. So now you can turn over to Zechariah. I want you to understand something. Those who were old enough to remember the former temple were discouraged because when the temple of Solomon was dedicated, what happened? The Shekinah glory of God descended, took up residence in the Holy of Holies, and it was so bright and so thick that it drove everyone out of the temple. And there was a visible, obvious indicator that the Lord their God was in their midst. This new temple they were building, guess what? No visible glory. And God says, even though there is no shining light, even though there is no visible glory, be assured I am in your midst. Why was he in their midst? Because they were being obedient, because they feared him. And he says, your adversity is no problem for me. Your smallness is no problem with me. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Everything hinges on their relationship to the living God. And so they, there's a revival that has just broken out just recently in the land. Haggai is... Been prophesying and will continue to prophesy. And God used Haggai and Zechariah to do this work. In, in Ezra 5, 1 to 2, Ezra gives a commentary on this. He says, Now the prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edu, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Yeshua, the son of Jehozadak, arose and began to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So these are the two men God uses. Now we're going to focus on the prophet Zechariah. That, that's the context. That's the historical context. You've got a weak and enfeebled people who've just recently, just in the last month or two, returned to the Lord, started being faithful, and God has already spoken kind words to them. So back to the, to the insert 
And we'll look some more at the history in coming weeks. I, I know that this history will take a couple times to sort of sink in, so we'll go back and look at it um, periodically in our study. But that's historical background. That, that's the situation. So you've got to understand, and this is where I think it can be very helpful for us, is to discourage people. It's to a people who used to have prominence, who used to have sway and power in the land, and now they do not. I don't know about you, but every day as I read the news, it seems that Christianity, Christians, are more and more marginalized in the West. And we can feel smaller and smaller, more and more powerless. God's got a word for people like that. He's got an encouraging word for that. And for people who, who are tired who've been unfaithful and are trying to return to the Lord, this is, this is a word for them as well. The author and date, if you look at verse 1-1, is given clearly. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edu, saying. And so, the year, there's the blank, is 520 B.C. And in the chronology of, of Haggai and Zechariah, Haggai is given his first address in August of 520 B.C. They begin building the temple three weeks later. Haggai then gives them another message, this one of encouragement and promise in October of 520 B.C. And then along comes Zechariah in late October, November, because their months don't exactly line up with our months, with his, with his message. But I want you to notice one other interesting thing. There's a very specific time stamp, and I'll try to tie this up for a big so what in a, in a moment. But just six verses later, there's another one. So if one one, in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. One seven, on the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius. We're going to jump ahead three months between one one and one six. Between one six, I'm sorry, and one seven. Now, when I'm reading the Bible, one of the things I assume is that God doesn't tell us things for no reason. So as I was reading and rereading this book, one of the things that stuck in my mind and my memory, one of the things that I was curious about is, apparently, the living God thinks I need to know that what is said in the first six verses took place two or three months before what happens in 1, 7 and following. Huh. I mean, clearly God made a point to show us one, one to six is separated by about two to three months from what follows. And I think we'll see that that's significant, that the timestamps matter here. Because let's read the first six verses of Zechariah. Starting in verse two, we just read verse one. The Lord was very angry with your fathers, therefore say to them thus, declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and our deeds, so 
he has dealt with us. What's striking, as we'll see in Zechariah, the book is a book of comfort. The book is a book of encouragement. Next week, we'll deal with the outline and the themes. For right now, I just want to make a couple observations in these first opening six verses. The book is a book of comfort. Jump, jump down, once we get to 1-7, we're going to see a series of night visions. And in the very first one, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the angel of the Lord, and we'll, and we'll deal with that next week, is present. And he speaks to the living God. Pick it up in verse 9. Then I said, what are these, my Lord? The angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing on the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered, The angel of the Lord who is standing amongst the myrtle trees. We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words. The overwhelming majority of this book is the Lord's gracious and comforting words to Israel. Gracious and comforting words. So the angel who talked with me said to me, cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry at the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched down over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts. My cities shall overflow again with prosperity. And the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. Now the rest of the book backs that up, unpacks that with specificity, relates what that will look like. But here's the thing I want you to get in our, our few minutes this morning. And this is down in point one where the Lord of hosts calls his people to repent. Like I said, we'll deal with the, the main message, the theme, and the outline next week. I just want to dip our toes into this text, the first six verses here. Is this one point. Before God can bless his people, they need to be a repentant people. That's, that's not in the blanks here. But before God can bless his people, they need to be a repentant people. Or to put it another way, the prerequisite, the precondition for all of God's blessing is repentance. Think about that. These people are discouraged. These people are beaten down. God sends Haggai to them. He rebukes them. Now the second they turn, the second they obey, he has comfort to give them. He has encouragement to give them. He has promises to give them. But they don't come until the people turn. God cannot bless and unfaithful people. And we get the same thing here. Why do I think the text wants us to see that what happens in verses 1 to 6 takes place two to three months before verse 7? Because God, through Zechariah, sends a message of repentance, return to me, and he lets that just hang in the air for two or three months before he proceeds and blesses them. We learn from Ezra. We learn from Haggai. They heed this call. They do redouble their efforts. They do return to the Lord. He returns to them. But get this out of the gate. All of God's promises, all of God's blessing, all of God's comfort, all of God's faithfulness to us is conditioned upon, dependent upon, our faithfulness and repentance towards him. 
just quickly the blanks here. We see in verse 3, the Lord's anger at the sin of his people. It's emphatic in the Hebrew, literally angry. I was very angry with your fathers. And, and they didn't need to be, this didn't need to be unpacked. They're just looking around them and they see the devastation. They see the evidence of God's anger. And the doctrine of God's anger is not very popular these days. We like to minimize it. It's even within the church, we like to minimize it. We don't like to think of God ever being angry at his children, but he is. God is always angry at sin. Always. <laughs> Listen to uh, Hebrews 10, 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately, and the we there is the author of Hebrews and the Jewish Christian whom he's writing, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Make no mistake, even as God's child, God is angry with sin. He is ang it's not all he is towards our sin, but he is angry at our sin. And you've got to make that point, otherwise there's no need to repent. If you think that God thinks you're swell no matter what you do, you'll, you'll never feel the burden and the urgency of repentance. But if you read the Bible and you understand that for lying, God killed Ananias and Sapphira, if you realize his holiness, how seriously he takes sin amongst his people, then these calls to repentance, these calls to faithfulness, take on the urgency they should have. The Lord reminds them, I was very angry at the sin of his people. Now he's, we're going to read he's angry at the sin of not his people, the nations. But he starts, before he announces judgments on Babylon, and he will, he will in the first night vision will deal with that. He's first and foremost angry at the sins of his people. Now, that sets up an invitation for grace. It's not just full stop, the end of the story. But understand, the more we minimize God's anger at sin, the more we're going to minimize the grace that, that remedies it. Because in the very next verse, it's angry with your fathers, very angry, he declares. We see the Lord's love and longing for his people. So verse 3, we see the Lord's anger at the sin of his people. We see next his love and longing for his people. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. It's beautifully poetic. Return to me and I will return to you. Literally, and some of your translations will say this, it's conditional. Return to me that I may return to you. God loves his people. He longs for his people. God is able to be angry at the sin of his people and still love his people. So I think one of the reasons why we sometimes shy away from God's anger is we hear God's angry, we think, well, then he doesn't love. It's both. God can be angry at our sin and love us. And his love is expressed in a call to repentance. The Lord's love and longing for his people. He longs for his people. He yearns for his people. I think of Jesus looking over Jerusalem, 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 the city that slaughters the prophets. How often I would gather you up as a mother hen, but you were not willing. Understand, our God longs for the restoration of his people. He longs for it. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul, speaking of our evangelistic ministry, says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
We implore you. God's making his appeal through me, and we implore you, be reconciled to God. And so we see God's righteous anger at the sin of his people. We see God's loving stance. Also, notice he's dealing with a sin here primarily relationally. Judgment has come. Sin, sin brings a judgment, but it also breaks relationships. And what he's focusing here is not return to my law, not return to my statutes, not even return to my covenant. Return to me, says the Lord. Return to fellowship with me. Point C, his blessing is conditioned upon our repentance. And that, that's the point I said starting out. His blessing is conditioned upon our repentance. T- turning your Bibles quickly back to um, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 30. See, Moses understood that this law program was going to fail. It was going to terminate. He understood that. And so in, in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he tells the people these things. Starting in verse 1. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you called into mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. So, so Moses is fully aware this will end in your expulsion from the land. This will end in you being scattered among the nations. When that happens, recall this to mind, verse 2, and return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all I command you today with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples of the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are outcast in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord will gather you, and from there he will take you, and the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, and that you may possess it, and he will make you more prosperous and more numerous than your fathers, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Moses tells them when this happens, when you're scattered, what you need to do is return. Everything can be fixed. Everything can be mended if you'll just turn, if you'll just repent and return. It's, it's promised there in, in Deuteronomy. It's laid out here as well. It's laid out by Haggai. And if you're here today and you are far from God, whether it's because you don't know him at all, or whether you may have come to know him previously, but you're in a season of life where you're far from him, know, know a couple things. Know God's anger is on you. His wrath abides on you. And know that he loves you and longs to be in a relationship with you. And know that his call is a call of repentance and faith. You see that here. It's turn to him, but there is no turning to him, verse 4, without turning from evil deeds. Do not be like your fathers, whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts. Return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. They did not pay attention, declares the Lord. And then down in verse 6, my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented. We understand that this call for return is a call for repentance. Turn to God, turn away from your sin. You're not calling them to do things. 
But what's clear is you can't give yourself to sin and be turning yourself towards God in faith. So what stops you from coming to Christ in faith is the love of your sin. And so biblically, repentance is turning from something. Faith is turning to something. And from the Old Testament to the New Testament, this is the word God has for lost people. It's the very first word of the gospel Jesus preaches in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Very last word as Jesus sends out the Great Commission in Luke 24. Jesus says to his disciples, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So that's the big point I want you to get. This is a book of blessing. This is a book of comfort. Jesus is prominent in this book. This is a book of God telling a broken, beaten up, bruised, weak people, I love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to lift you high. I'm going to come and fight for you. But first, before we get to any of that, return to me. And then God lets that hang in the air for three months and they do. They do. Like I said earlier, if you're here and you're far from God, that's his word to you today. Return to me. Return to me. There's all these blessings we got in the New Testament. You can become a son. You can receive his spirit. You can be adopted. You become a joint heir with Christ. You can receive the comforts of Christ, the blessings of his body and his people. But all of that hinges upon, will you turn from evil deeds to the living God? Will you trust in his son? Notice here it's given to the people who are redeemed. This isn't just a word for the lost. This is a word for Christians. We always need to be correcting ourselves. Our, our life is one of daily repentance and faith. And so God is, is calling upon all of us to return to him. Maybe, maybe we haven't turned as far away as others, but I guarantee you today in your heart there is that which causes you to turn from God, and his call is, is return to me. I will return to you. This is what James says. Draw near to him, he'll draw near to you. Resist the devil, he will flee from you. Point D, this is because his call to repentance is a kindness. We'll, we'll pick it up here next week, but I just want you to get that. All of God's blessings, all of God's blessings are conditioned upon our repentance and faith. There is no, God cannot bless the unrepentant. He cannot believe those who have, he cannot bless those, I'm sorry, who have turned from him. You know, God is gracious, he is long-suffering, but he does not negotiate. The gospel and its demands upon us are not up for negotiation. You don't have to do anything, but in your heart, you have to turn from your wicked deeds to him. Return to him, he says, and I will return to you. The Lord calls his people to repent. That is the first word of Zechariah. It's what lays the foundation for all the blessings to come. All the good news to come is hinged and keyed upon that. I'm going to call up the worship team for our final song now, which is a fitting song. It's the gospel song. In this short song, all the truths of the gospel are summarized and rehearsed. And I just think it's good for us before we dive into Zechariah, for us to hear this word, to let it ring in our ears for a week or two before we move on to the comfort and the encouragement that is to come. Let's sing now the gospel song.